1: Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Mississippi State University Center for Distance Education, providing online programs and certification at the graduate and undergraduate levels. Distance at State, even there you're here. More information at distance.msstate.edu.
0: Good morning. It's 8:30 on Thursday, April 26th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, more money is heading to counties in Mississippi to help fix hazardous bridges. How soon can the work begin? Then find out how families affected by autism are using technology to help those living with the disorder lead normal lives. Yes,
2: they do have some differences than
0: the norm, but
2: they want the same things in life that all of us do.
0: And in our book club, we'll hear from the author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning Devil in the Grove, Meet Gilbert King. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is giving the go-ahead to raise millions of dollars with bonds that are earmarked to fix unsafe bridges. The state bond commission unanimously approved $25 million in funding to repair and replace bridges that are hazardous to the motoring public. Governor Phil Bryant recently declared a state of emergency for more than 100 dilapidated bridges in Mississippi under pressure from the U.S. Department of Transportation. Governor Bryant, Attorney General Jim Hood, and State Treasurer Lynn Fitch are on the commission board. The amount is half of the $50 million in bonds state lawmakers approved during the past legislative session. Fitch says the legislature must come up with a comprehensive, long-term solution, but action needed to begin immediately.
2: Well, as a member of the bond commission, we felt that it was critical to take immediate action um, to approve $25 million, uh, to get some dollars very quickly uh, to the Rosenbridges. bridges. Uh, my office started working on funding about a week ago, uh, it's important to get these infrastructure needs taken care of as as fast as we can. Um, MDOT has about $15 million in shovel-ready projects, and so now they'll be able to go to work immediately on those. Uh, I think that's about 36 bridges. Um, With with this new funding available, uh, they'll be able to move more projects to shovel-ready status a lot more quickly. And so, as a member of this commission, we felt like this was important that we act quickly, uh, get this into the hands of municipalities so that they can immediately begin taking action.
0: How important is finding the solutions right now? It seems you've worked very quickly on this. Well, we
2: um, did $25 million right now, and as soon as July 1st comes, then we'll do a bond sale, and we'll do another $25 million. So they'll put $50 million in funding out to the counties as quickly as possible and as quickly as they can use it. Now, I do think it's extremely important and recognize that the legislature needs to come up with a comprehensive, long-term approach, Um, but we, as the Vine Commission, knew we had to do something, we had to help right now, and it was within our power to do so, so we acted very quickly. And you have to remember, infrastructure is the lifeblood of the economy. Um, It speaks to our economic growth, as well as our quality of life, Um, and we just cannot afford not to take action quickly.
0: What is your opinion of inaction by state lawmakers to fund roads and bridges?
2: Well, I certainly think the $50 million was a, a first stop. Uh, they will need to get all the subject matter experts and determine where the revenue streams are uh, because this needs to be a, an annual commitment to, um, maintenance, rehabilitation of our roads. Um, this is... The future and in it involves our economy and certainly the safety as people across the states are traveling on our roads and bridges.
0: <laughs> the other half of the $50 million in bonds the legislature passed be approved by the bond commission at the next meeting.
2: Absolutely. We will look forward to the next bond sale in the summer and it will very quickly be approved to get the additional $25 million to give us a total of $50 million in funding. So the bond commission certainly sees that as an important move. I um, mean, this is very consistent in how we uh, strategically approach uh, projects. In um, roads and bridges, infrastructure is a number one category at this moment. Um, and so as the state bond commission member, we're going to um, prioritize the state needs. We're going to look for the biggest bang for our buck. And certainly this is um, infrastructure is, is critical. Um, we will utilize the input of the local officials uh, on the priority needs of their areas. And um, we will vet very um, Conscientiously, the projects with the state officials who run these programs, which in turn certainly is in MDOT and State Aid Roads, and they do a, a phenomenal job.
0: State Treasurer Lynn Fitch, Attorney General Jim Hood tells MPB's Mark Rigsby lawmakers had a chance to do more to fund roads and bridges this year.
3: The counties are just being choked down trying to absorb all these cuts from the legislature. And you know, twenty five million sounds like a lot of money, but it's a drop in a bucket for how many bridges we gotta replace. Uh, I mean some are cost a million bucks. I mean if you fix twenty five bridges and you got hundreds more to, to go. The legislation goes in effect July one, but what we did is we borrowed money um uh twenty five million of it because that's all the Department of Transportation was saying that they could distribute out to those counties uh by the time uh, the law goes into effect, and then we will issue bonds for the remainder for the whole $50 million, uh, and, and then hopefully by fall. we will, So we're already starting early. The law allows us to go ahead and, and borrow that money when, so when the law goes into effect, we will be prepared to distribute the money. And uh, the other 25 will have an impact, but, you know, the legislature has just ducked their duty. They have not, um, you know, fixed our roads. Their votes were over there. That's what's so Odd about it, Republicans and Democrats wanted a road built, bit ten cents on fuel and spread it around. There is support over there to pass that. It's just leadership choking it off, simply to be able to say that I didn't raise anybody's taxes. You know, that's just politics. That's not actually helping people. It's not. It's not good for economic growth. I mean, you know, highways are, are how you attract businesses uh, here as well as education, having schools that the executives would want to send their people to. So. You know, there again, this is just another situation where the legislature is doing something that's politically popular by saying I didn't raise anybody's taxes. But the house, there again, is burning down around us. There are vital needs of roads and bridges and education and mental health that that we have to do. And it sounds great. Oh, we need to cut that. Those people are all, you know, uh, sloughing off. They don't deserve all these benefits. But you know, there's so many that um, out there that that have nothing and. Uh, it's our duty to, to, to try to take care of them, and if we don't, we get sued. When is the additional $25 million going to be approved? I believe it's sometime
0: when, is it July that's going to be the next meeting, or is it, it sometime during the
3: It will be in July. We will um, um, have a bond bill in the fall, um, but we will have borrowed the money on the the basis that we will get money from from the sale of the bonds to pay off the borrowed money. We just borrowed the money to get it started quicker. Uh, so, it, all in all, it won't cost us any more in interest, and it gets the the money uh, uh, on the ground quicker. And it's
4: what the legislature
1: had approved originally, the fifty million. Yes, totally.
3: that they approve the fifty million. Uh, but but we have another section of law that we interpret that says you know uh, that you can borrow against money that uh, may not have the law may not have gone into effect yet, but you can borrow it going forward because you know that authority will be in place on July one.
0: Attorney General Jim Hood with our Mark Rigsby, coming up. Find out how families affected by autism are using technology to help those living with the disorder lead normal lives. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On the next MPB season pass, we'll speak with Mississippi Sports Hall of Fame
2: member, former New York Yankee, and Ole Miss Baseball coach Jake Gibbs. He'll reminisce with us. Sam Wells from the Mississippi Special Olympics will be on the show to talk about their program and upcoming games. We've also got Carlisha Gianakos from the State Games of Mississippi. She'll tell us how you can participate as an athlete or a volunteer tomorrow at 10 a.m. on MPB Think Radio or on the internet at mpbonline.org.
0: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Technology is playing a role in helping more Mississippians living with autism communicate with the rest of the world. Dr. Barbara Saunders is Division Chief of Child Development at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. She tells MPB's Ashley Norwood there could be more than 10,000 Mississippians living with the disorder.
5: There's a a general statistic of about 20% of all children have some type of developmental
0: or behavioral
5: need. Um... Just a rough estimate, if it was one in 68, it could be as high as 10,000 children in Mississippi. And it may honestly be higher. It's hard to say with the discrepancy between educational and medical records, and sometimes the two don't talk to each other. So we may not be aware of all the children who have a diagnosis.
6: Uh, If you could talk about how important technology, therapy, education, those kinds of things, Mm -hmm. but specifically technology, Mm -hmm. how important that is to the development of the child.
5: Well, any child who has um, a developmental delay or behavioral need, especially very young children, therapy and um, educational preschool support is vitally important. We know that the brain develops, um, most of the development occurs in the first three years of life. Uh, the the large bulk of it by age five, the brain is 90% of its adult size and weight, so those first three to five years of life are very, very important. Um, so for kids who have delayed speech therapy or occupational therapy for fine motor delays, developmental preschool programs, those all really help the child gain new skills while their brain is still um, able to learn them at its best. Technology can be very helpful for some of these children. Um, It can be a bit of a hindrance for others, even the really young kids can get kind of hooked on technology like um older kids and adults can. So there is a balance, um, but especially with communication, technology has proven to really be helpful for children, especially those who go on to have persisting communication delays um, and aren't able to fully communicate with spoken word. Um, There are apps for iPads and for phones. There are even um, formal what we call augmentative uh, communication devices that can allow children and young adults without language to be able to communicate pretty effectively with other people around them.
6: Dr. Barbara Saunders is the Division Chief of Child Development at UMMC. Dr. Saunders, thank you again so much for your time today.
0: You are very welcome. Pam Dollar is Executive Director of the Coalition for Citizens with Disabilities. Her 27-year-old son has autism. She tells MPB's Ashley Norwood her son's breakthrough came with use of technology.
2: He was diagnosed when he was 2 years old. Um, He has a form of autism call regressive autism, which is when kids start out to develop normally, and then they go through uh, some kind of regression. And I think the statistics are about 30% of the autism population falls into that category. So 17, 18 months old, he had about 150-word vocabulary, never met a stranger, played with toys appropriately, pretty much I tell people, did everything autism is not. And then over about a two-month period of time, began to lose his language, um, lost down to about five words, started becoming socially withdrawn, and um, just really had a total personality change. And after his second birthday, um, we immediately just started trying to give him whatever help we could, mostly by word of mouth, uh, found out about different programs and interventions that, you know, he needed to be in. And so uh, he did some early interventions through the Department of Mental Health. We also got him private speech therapy. Um, Then he went to Magnolia Speech School when he was four. And then he started public school when he was seven, two years late. Autism is a developmental disability, though. And so um, sometimes, you know, it's okay to start them when they're a little bit older, like in school. And he did that all day every day from the time he was in kindergarten until about the middle of seventh grade. And then puberty hit, and he started having seizures. He also started uh, exhibiting some uh, aggressive behaviors, which happens sometimes when people with autism hit puberty. But then Transition was able to get the behaviors settled down, and he was able to transition back to a uh, public school. And he then was able to graduate with the same kids he started kindergarten with. But graduated high school still pretty much nonverbal, couldn't carry on a conversation with you. And then in September of that year, he had a huge breakthrough using an app on the iPad to communicate and started typing to communicate with us. And it was amazing. And the... Getting to know him on a whole different level once he started uh, having a way to communicate with us was just amazing. So that's kind of his story in a nutshell.
6: Is there a particular thing that uh, you would like to highlight about autism and how it's affected uh, your family?
2: Um, well, it pretty much changed my whole life um, because, um, like I said, I'm the director of the Coalition for Citizens with Disabilities One of our, in 2006, the coalition wrote for a a grant through the U.S. Department of Education to provide training and information and support to parents who have children with disabilities around educational issues. And so when Watson was diagnosed with autism, I started learning everything I could about how education would be for him and what his, you know, what we were responsible for as his parents and what The school district was responsible for providing for him. And I just, you know, I was educating myself so that I could be a good advocate for him. But in the process, I had lots of parents who started calling me saying, can you attend my son's, you know, IEP meeting with me at the school? And so I started doing, I did it for years, just, you know, volunteer um, for friends of mine that I knew. And then eventually I was hired by the coalition uh, and I um, first started as the director of that project where we provide support to parents. And so I absolutely love what I do, and autism was the door that opened up the, the way for me to really find my purpose in life. And I know that may sound kind of ironic or it may sound like I'm just making that up, but it's really not. I, I truly found my purpose in life through autism. Um, Which is helping other families. It's it's just been amazing. And one thing that a lot of times people forget is that people with disabilities are more like us than they are different. Yes, they do have some differences than the norm, but you know they want the same things in life that all of us do. You know they want to have a you know they want to be spend time with their family and be able to participate in social events and be able to have a job and just live life just like everyone else does.
6: Pam Dollar is the executive director of the Mississippi Coalition for Citizens with Disabilities. Thank you so much, Pam, for your time today.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for having me. April is National Autism Awareness Month. Coming up, Pulitzer Prize-winning author Gilbert King talks about his book, Beneath a Ruthless Sun. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
1: That might sound like loose change to you, but to us here at Mississippi Public Broadcasting, it sounds like support. Now with the program Change by SoftGiving, you can round up your change from everyday purchases and support MPB and the programs you love. With every purchase, you show your support for smart, entertaining, and engaging programs that benefit all Mississippians. Sign up today by visiting mpbonline.org support and click Donate Your Change.
0: Gilbert King is the author of the 2013 Pulitzer Prize-winning bestseller *Devil in the Grove*, *Thurgood Marshall*, *The Grove Land Boys*, and *The Dawn of a New America*. King has written about Supreme Court history and the death penalty for the New York Times and the Washington Post, and as a featured contributor to Smithsonian Magazine and the Marshall Project. His latest book, *Beneath a Ruthless Sun: A True Story of Violence, Race, and Justice Lost and Found*, tells a tale of corruption in a Florida town where a journalist pushes to uncover the story of a white, mentally impaired man falsely accused of rape. King tells us about his attraction to crime stories. Since I was young,
4: I always was drawn to these sort of stories of injustices or falsely imprisoned men and and stories around slave narratives. And I really can't even explain that because I grew up in the northeast in a suburb. I mean, this was really not sort of the life that was around me. I, I wasn't exposed to any of this. But for some reason, those kind of stories just really moved me since I was very young. And it was always the kind of books that I was reading, and and I was always drawn to crime stories early on. So when I I started to get a little bit older, I was merging my interest in crime stories with some of these social histories and civil rights. And then when I stumbled upon, you know, a case in Louisiana back in 1946, that story really got me into this. And I I just recognized that this is really what I want to do with my writing.
0: How did you come about this true story that was close to Devil in the Grove? You know, it's interesting. I was doing a book talk in 2012
4: down in in Lake County, Florida, and this older deputy came up to me and he basically said, you got your story right, but you didn't tell the whole story. There's other things that have happened in this county. And so we sort of got to talking and made an appointment to meet about a month later. And he basically said, there's a story here that nobody will talk about. It happened in 1957. I was a deputy on the force, and we framed this kid for a rape that he did not commit. And as I started looking into it, I thought, well, this would be a nice follow-up article maybe. Um, And I started filing Freedom of Information Act requests. And the more I started learning about it, the more I recognized that this was a book idea. It needed to be told in a long form.
0: In this story, there's a 19-year-old mentally challenged white male he's picked up for the alleged rape of a white woman. He's put into a mental institution. She says, quote, a husky Negro did the crime. Given the racial tensions at the time, did authorities look for a black suspect? They did. That was their initial thing. I mean, as
4: soon as they got the word that she reported that she'd been raped by a black man,
0: you know, this sheriff's
4: department swung into action. This is what they were really good at is rounding up black suspects, which they did. In this little town, they, they got two dozen young black men, threw them in jail and started interrogating them one by one. And um, soon enough, they narrowed it down to the nephew of the big civil rights activist in Florida, who was in the process of integrating the University of Florida's laws. And so this was going to be a big embarrassment to that name, Virgil Hawkins. Uh, they got Virgil Hawkins's nephew. But then something really strange happened. The husband of the victim returned to town and basically had these conversations. And, and the conversations revolved around I can't have it out there that a black man defiled my wife. What are we going to do about this? And so all of a sudden, uh, this white Jesse Daniels was arrested. Uh, The black suspects were turned loose, and they focused all their attention on Jesse Daniels. And so that's what makes the story very strange, this little secret about how they were able to cover it up and basically let go the real rapist and then take Jesse Daniels and throw him into a horrible mental institute in Florida.
0: Tell us about the horrible conditions of that mental institution.
4: This is a place called Chattahoochee, and it was basically considered the place that you'll never get out of alive. It was just one of those horrible mental institutes where you didn't get to see a doctor for years. They would just dope you up on Thorazine. Uh, They were doing electric shock therapy, lobotomies. The violence in this place, it it was considered worse than the state prison system.
0: Were there people you couldn't get to talk with you that may have helped with some of the details? Most
4: of the people that didn't talk to me was only because they they had passed away. I had Deputy Evie Griffin, who worked on this case. He was able to give me a lot of information about how the deputies had framed Jesse. Like They had conversations about this. They told him they were planting evidence to make it look like this kid did it, um, which was very consistent with the way the Lake County Sheriff's Department operated. Um, Jesse's lawyer is still alive, so he was able to give me all his files and walk me through the case. Um, I got my hands on Mabel's files because she had passed away in the 1990s. I was told people were not going to talk about this story, Um, but I I was very persistent about it, and I developed these relationships over the years. So the family members, even of the victim, began to talk to me, too. So I had a lot more cooperation than I thought I would have going into this project.
0: This book is called Beneath a Ruthless Sun, A True Story of Violence, Race, and Justice, Lost and Found. We've been speaking with its author, Pulitzer Prize winner Gilbert King. Thank you very much for being with us. Oh, it's my pleasure, Karen. Thanks for having me. And Gilbert King will be signing books at Square Books on Monday, April 30th at 5 p.m. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Creature Comforts. Then at 10 o'clock, it's season pass. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. Did you miss part of the show today? Find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app from the Apple or Google Play stores. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi edition only on MPB Think Radio.
1: Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Mississippi State University Center for Distance Education, providing online programs and certification at the graduate and undergraduate levels. Distance at State, even there you're here. More information at distance.msstate.edu.